This is 15 Minutes of Freedom. I'm your host, Ryan Idell, and today we're going to talk about the R word. Yes, my friend, we are going to discuss racism as it exists in the U.S. from someone that is completely unqualified to speak about it, but I feel a little bit better about myself now. And I can laughingly say I feel better about myself because I posted that fancy black square, right? Black Lives Matter, Blackout Tuesday. And so I, I know racism, right? I figured it out. Of course, I'm kidding with you right now. That's certainly not what this is ultimately about. But I do find it a little humorous, the different sides of the equation that exist based around that nice black square that you might have seen floating around social media. I admittedly posted it. As you might be sitting there wondering, I did. And I did it without thinking. I saw it and I'm like, man, this is just a great way to acknowledge that there are atrocities that go on in the U.S. It doesn't mean that I've done my part. It doesn't mean I have it all figured out. It was a way to draw awareness of something. And I didn't realize when I posted it that it was some sort of major conspiracy theory. I didn't realize it was some sort of major to-do at the same time that Hillary Clinton was being, you know, I don't know how to say it. She was, it was being determined if she was going to have to appear under oath and share some things that she might not have done appropriately. And who knows if that's ultimately the the piece and part behind this. I have no idea. I still looked at it as a way to stand in a certain amount of unity. Now, it's been said that no good deed goes unpunished, and that was also true about this post. You see, it didn't take more than three or four hours before three, four, five, it could be seven, ten, twelve at this point, people slid into my DMs telling me how wrong it was that I posted that, that if someone really needed help and they posted something with hashtag Black Lives Matter or hashtag Blackout Tuesday, that my black square was going to clog up the feed so that they couldn't have their message heard. And certainly there's truth in that, right? I mean, you and I can agree with one another. If everybody's posting the same thing, it's harder to have new information be found. But really, right, somebody takes the time out of their day to now attack me for doing something that literally I gave about 13 seconds worth of thought, and it was only because it took me that long to screenshot somebody else's post and type it in and then right, hit post. What became fascinating to me is the number of people then on social media, people with influence, people with larger tribes and communities that I have, they came out really just blasting people for putting out or posting that black square. That if you think posting the black square is the solution, you're part of the problem. And I'm sitting here thinking like, man, we can't even agree that posting an image of a black square could be a good thing. How the hell are we going to agree on anything else? You see, from my position, my standpoint, I don't believe that posting a black square solves racism. I don't believe it solves inequality. I don't believe it's the end all to be all. I do believe that it brings people's awareness to something that is greater. You see, I had to take stock of my own life that day. With this Tuesday, I'm recording this on a Thursday, so it's been a whopping two days. 
And one of my closest friends, one of my dear friends, a man that has been a guest on this podcast, his name is TJ Floyd. TJ grew up in a town called named Marion, Ohio, which is right a couple miles south of Lexington slash Mansfield where I grew up. We were, I'll say, rivals of some capacity on on the gridiron in high school football. Like we we were close. We didn't know each other then. And freshman year rolls around at University of Cincinnati, and we're not roommates for the first semester or first quarter wherever we were on, but both of us ended up having empty rooms and we decided to combine forces second half of the year. And needless to say, right, that was I was 18. I'm 36 now. I've got 18 years of track record now with TJ. Next year, him and I will be friends for longer than I didn't know him, which is crazy to think as I'm getting older. Do you ever have those things where out of nowhere it's, there's this event that triggers your mind and you realize, like, wow, I'm actually getting older, like <laughs> really getting old? So I'm sharing all this because it happens to be that TJ is black. He's always been black. It never bothered me. I didn't care. And then I say, well, like, I I don't see color. And then that's looked at as wrong now. It's like, well, of course, when I saw TJ in the weight room at Cincinnati, I did, in fact, notice that he had light skin as a black man. I just didn't give a shit about it. It didn't matter to me. So what is the more now appropriate term for me to say, I saw that he was black. It just didn't bother me. Like, I don't know. Like, this is this is where it gets tough. And this this ended up leading to me realizing how ignorant that I really have been, how uneducated, how uninformed. And I shared this little sidebar about TJ because as I'm driving home from the office on Tuesday evening, I realize I have never asked one of my closest friends what it is like to be black. We've never had this conversation. And somewhat I can say because it didn't matter to me. And then as people pick that apart, and I've shared that now openly in a couple different tribes, like, well, how didn't it matter to you? That's part of the problem. You didn't even care. Nicely, TJ didn't give a fuck about what it was like for me to be white. He didn't care at all. We were just two friends. He's my man. We are close. He was just at my house during the coronavirus. Well, not really. My wife and daughter, because he flew from South Carolina to Columbus, I picked him up as he went and saw his sister, but they didn't feel comfortable with him staying because the airports and all that nonsense. Nonetheless, I spent time with him just a handful of weeks ago. At least once a quarter we get together. And I share all this because it became fascinating for me to have this conversation with him and go through these levels and layers that exist, right? Just owned it. Number one, checked in on him, just like I always do, right? We check in on each other. Didn't necessarily have something to do with the racially charged times we're currently living in. But check in, see how the, he works in the car business, right? Something near and dear to my heart. Ask him how things are going. Then I just hit him with it. Like, man, I've known you for 18 years and I've never known, I've never asked you what it's like to be black. And I'm trying to become more educated, so I'm going to ask that. I'm like, I realize I don't know what it's like to drive down the road and have to worry about being racially profiled and getting pulled over by a police officer. And he shares his version of what that feels like. And I'm like, well, shit. Other than the fact my skin's not black, I feel the exact same way. Anytime I see a police officer behind me or anywhere near me, 
both my hands go on the wheel, my seat goes up a little bit more, I make sure my music's not up too loud, I'm using my turn signals, and I find the quickest way possible to get off the road and get in somewhere public. I just, I don't inherently, and not that a cop has ever done anything really wrong to me. It's just I don't want to interact with a cop because I don't want to get a ticket for something even though as I'm driving, I believe I'm doing everything inside the bounds of the law. Let me give you a little side story here as well. See, there was a time back when I owned that pickup truck that I've shared so often that I got repossessed. This F-250 Platinum diesel pickup truck. I just started working for a gentleman that owned a custom clothing company. He's the man that taught me the industry. And I'm downtown downtown Columbus, and this crazy as it sounds, being a suburb guy, I never really spent much time downtown. Quite a little bit, but there's like two or three main streets. That's all I went on. And as I got more familiar with where the office was at for the clothing company downtown, didn't mean I really knew the road structure that well. And so I'm driving downtown, I get off the highway, I come to a stop, I look around, and inevitably I'm sure that I had either checked my email, checked social media, checked a text message, was listening to music. I wasn't paying attention. It's most certainly not anybody else's fault other than my own. But I turn my turn signal on, my seatbelt's on, I drive down a road, and then I turn right. As I turn right, this cop comes like flying up behind me, lights on, sirens on, megaphone, pull over, get out of the car. And like, I'm in a big black F-250 platinum diesel pickup truck, right? There's no tinted windows, no anything. I'm like, okay, right? My seatbelt's on. It's broad daylight. Right? He's talking to me through the, through the megaphone, through the speakerphone in the car. Right? Take your keys out of the ignition, drop them out. Drop them out of the window. Like, holy shit. Okay. Right? My seatbelt's still on. My window's rolled down. I have both hands now out the window. I'm in a full suit. It's 9 a.m. on, I believe, a Tuesday morning. He comes up to the side of the car. His gun is drawn. It's aimed right at me through the window. And I say aimed right at me, right? He's, he's looking down the barrel of his gun as he's approaching the vehicle. Says, okay, with your hands, keep your hands where I can see them. Open the door hat latch. Open it from the outside. So I open it, right, and I push it open. My hands are still there. And admittedly, I'm nervous as shit. My seatbelt's still on. Everything's still connected. So, all right, unbuckle your seatbelt. So, okay, like I leave my left hand out. Like, watch my right hand. I don't have anything on me. Like, I don't have a conceal and carry at this point. I don't have anything in the truck. I got nothing. So I press the seatbelt button. I let it slide over my shoulder. I put both hands back out. My door's wide open. I'm in downtown Columbus, 9 a.m. There's spectators watching. There are people watching this. I can't say if I'm if I notice anybody videotaping this, but it was just being watched. Cop comes up, right? Gun still firmly drawn, and gets right up, right up on me and kind of yanks me out of the car. And slams me up against the door. Against the back door. Put your hands behind your back. Spread your legs. And he's holstering his gun. And I'm like, okay. And he's getting like rough and aggressive with me. And again, at this moment, it's 9 a.m. in the morning. I'm in a completely stock F-250 diesel platinum pickup truck in downtown Columbus in broad daylight. 
the officer happened to be white. And he is rough and aggressive as could be with me. He eventually has my hands behind my back. Puts him in cuffs. Do you know why I pulled you over? I said, sir, I have no idea right now. You turned the wrong way down a one-way street. That was a one-way street. What the hell are you doing? Sir, I must not have seen it. Must not have paid attention. I don't come downtown very often. I'm uncertain. I didn't notice. There were no cars on the road. You're right. It wasn't like I was playing Frogger in traffic and having to weave in and out. It would have been very obvious to me at that moment that I was going the wrong way on a one-way. See, that wasn't the facts. There was nobody on the road. And so he eventually right, pats me down, kind of has me up against a picker truck, says, stay there. And he proceeds to what I would say, I believe that the term is, toss my vehicle. He completely rifles through it. He goes through everything. Everything possible flips up the seat in the back of the seat pockets underneath the seat flashlight the whole deal at this point Right my for some something happened and my knuckles began to bleed they had been cutting something And another officer comes up that officer happened to be black And I proceed to get booked at this moment in time, right? They took me downtown. Driving the wrong way on a one-way street. And apparently at that moment I had had, not apparently, right? This is factually. There's, there's no pontification here. There's no hiding this. At that moment in time, I had an unpaid ticket from some point in my life. Don't remember where or why. No surprise, right? I was going broke at that point in my life. And so they take me downtown, right? Downtown Columbus. Book me right in. Right? I'm like, can I call anybody? Can I? Can I? And they're like, nope. I'm like, all right, so it's 9 o'clock in the morning. I'm supposed to be at the office. My wife's at work. Not my wife at that point. I'm bleeding. I've just been messed up. My car is getting now impounded. And I'm in the back of the, the cop car. And I'm having a conversation with the black officer because he's the one that takes me downtown. And he's actually apologizing for all this. He thinks it's a, an atrocity because this other officer apparently could have handled it much differently. Right, my, I was across the street. I was in the process of pulling into the parking lot in which I worked. Had they just allowed me to pull into the parking lot, the car could have stayed there. It would not have needed to be impounded. And he did not need to necessarily book me and throw me in jail. He could have offered me a fine or a ticket or made me appear in court, which I gladly would have done all of those things. And I find it fascinating as I share this story with you because these are comparable things to what TJ has expressed to me that he has been through. There's a time in which he got pulled over and he was in fact speeding. He recognizes he was speeding and he didn't have his registration in the car. See, TJ works in the car world, as I said, finance manager for a great dealership down in South Carolina. So he has done well for himself in his life and drives nice cars. So you can imagine what it would be like if he gets pulled over without registration to a car that looks like it could be nicer than he might be supposed to be driving, as atrocious as that sounds. I share that because as we're sharing the story, right, it's a commonality. Then we go further, right? I start talking about the N-word. 
It's a word that I have chosen not to say for a very long time. We can say it's out of respect to black individuals. We can say it's out of fear of being ridiculed. We say anything you want to say. I just don't use that word. Admittedly, as much as I love hip-hop music, as much as I love rap music, even when that word comes on and it's being rapped in a song, that's the part that my mouth doesn't open for. But I asked TJ, like, why is it that way? I didn't know. Like, why can't I use that word? And he proceeds to share with me that right when the white man enslaved the black man from Africa, of course, that's what we decided to call the slaves. And I didn't know my lineage. I wasn't around back then, so I wasn't a part of the slavery nonsense that went on. But it happened nonetheless. And so by the nature of that, the way that TJ has explained it to me, that he and black society has reclaimed the power of that word by using that word. And so it no longer has weight over them. And I say, well, that's all well and good, but right, let's be honest for a moment. That word inherently meant royalty back in Africa. That was a positive adjective. It was one of the words that we, as white people, heard them saying the black man and women that we enslaved, we heard them saying it because they were calling out to their leader, to the royalty, to the best of the best, begging for help. And so we adopted that and gave it a negative terminology. See, the only word, the only definition, the only way a word has any power is the definition which we give it, which is fascinating in its own right. Now, I'm not advocating for the fact of being able to use this word, but what's even more fascinating about this to me as an unintelligent, well, not unintelligent. I was not intelligent about these facts. TJ and I have been friends for 18 years and I've never used that word. Don't really care to. He said to me, it's one of these things where if it was used, he would have to check me on it. He would have to tell me, no matter how close we are, that's just not appropriate. Then I'm on a coaching call last night with a tribe of people, incredible tribe of people, and I'm looking at the faces on the screen And three, four, five of the faces on the screen happen to be black. Having this conversation with them. And they take the complete opposite stance. They said, it could really care less. It has no weight or gravity to them. That they know the inflection and the tonality in which it comes out. And that's the only way it gives it meaning. And isn't that true for most of this? It's the inflection and the tonality. Because as we sit here, or as I sit here, and I'm sharing this story with you, it became fascinating to me in those moments where the people on the coaching call didn't care. They've known me for four or five months. TJ cares immensely, and he's known me for 18 years. And I share the same with both individuals, both groups. So look, you understand that as a white person, I'll just speak for myself. If there was a time in which I wanted to use that word, it would be because I would like to be accepted. I would like to be part of the crew. I would like to be brought in. It's not to use in a derogatory fashion. It's actually quite the opposite. It's like I remember in junior high when I started, you know, when rap videos came out. Like that urban culture was something that I thought was incredibly cool. Black culture was cool to me. So... The Timberland boots that were unlaced. 
the oversized Carl Kanai pants. Buying Jordans and wearing them not to play basketball. Like the list gets pretty long. Baggy pants. All this stuff. Right, that wasn't something that, you know, we in white middle class America just came up with. No, no, no. We we wanted to fit in. We thought that was cool. For the same reason that many of us would want to use that word. We just want to be accepted. And see, that's the part that on TJ's side, he hadn't considered. And it wasn't to change his mind. It was just factual. But if I'm walking down the street and I see a group of black men that I'm friendly with, I want to be invited in. I want to feel like one of the black men. No different than I want to feel like one of the white guys. White men. Which gets into a more unique part of this conversation, and that's the sheer nature of what tribalism really means. So we can, in my opinion, which isn't necessarily opinion, it's fairly scientifically proven by looking at psychology, social psychology, spiral dynamics, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, name any one of these psychological constructs. Separatism is a healthy part of the human psyche. And right, we kid ourselves. We, we say, no, no, no. That's not really how it is. That's actually nonsense. If you're walking dead fast down the middle of the street, right down the middle, there's no cars, there's no nothing. On one corner, there's a bunch of people that look just like you. About the same age, same skin color, same general appearing interests, same body structure. They're going to seem more warm and inviting than someone that doesn't fit into that target demographic. So we can go as extreme in saying there's a corner with a bunch of black men on it, and there's a corner with a bunch of white men on it. It is more natural that I'm going to gravitate towards the white tribe. They're more familiar to me. And no matter what you say yourself, it's an inherently hardwired into us growth pattern of associating with tribe. And it starts with your family. They're the most familiar. Then typically it spreads to your church and then people that are of like mind and color. And then eventually right, you branch out into high school, middle school, and that evolves into sporting teams and things like that. And so there's a little bit of a fallacy in assuming the fact that somehow magically we're all just supposed to get along. That we should all just blend together. Because the individualization of the nation actually makes us as powerful as we are. Now, this isn't to say that it's appropriate what happened to George Floyd. That's where this whole thing gets even more convoluted. It's like by saying all lives matter, it would de- degrades what black lives matter really means. And I understand why it's important. Right? I understand all the metaphors that exist in the world where if I'm at a dinner table with a bunch of individuals and they're all eating and I'm sitting at the end of the table and saying, I want food and everybody else says I want food, but they already have food. It doesn't make it any less impactful. But it's understanding for just a moment, like as, as I came to this realization with TJ, like this is forget conspiracy theory for a second. Forget everything. Like, If the universe has a positive and negative, right, a plus and a minus, a sum total zero theory where everything balances out, then at some point there'd have to be good and bad too, right? Of course. There'd have to be 
like a melting pot. There has to come from more understanding and more education so that we can drop down some of the barriers and the walls. Because as we look at something like a spiral dynamics and you look at how the process of the human psyche or how groups of individuals process, you go from this stage where you care about right, how you were brought up and then you ascend into the power God level where you're right. It's that, it's that anger. It's the quick to punch somebody. It's the shadow integration side. Then you get very orderly, right? You need a certain amount of orderliness. You need a certain amount of structure to grow and evolve. And then from that level, you get into more kind of business-minded, where you're hard-charged, you want to conquer the world. And it's not until you've been through all those that you make this cataclysmic jump from that level five to level six. And it's big jump because level six is where you can finally start to see that you could, in theory, have something for everybody. But level seven is where you understand how to integrate all those and that you have you have a knowledge, a working knowledge of each level and that you can descend into them depending on when you need them. Well, from the work of Claire Graves, the work of Don Beck, the work of, oh gosh, any number of individuals, Ken Wilbur, we start looking that level seven, level eight, and level nine are less than eight, ten percent of the population at max globally. It's a fallacy to believe that this isn't the way that things are. It's a fallacy to think that somehow we're all supposed to get along. Right? And the cognitive bias that we all operate under creates the reality in which we view the world through. And so having even that understanding puts a different light on things, this TJ and I experience. Right? I had no idea. I didn't even remember. There was a time in life in which I brought him to a lake in Mansfield where we were wakeboarding. I had no idea. I didn't even remember this. Right, so we used to go out on a ski nautique boat and we would wakeboard and he had never been before. Of course, so he drives up from Marion one summer, comes up, stays, does whatever. We have a good time. And he's sharing with me, he's like, I had no idea why people did that stuff. I didn't even know that existed. I'd never been on a boat. I'd never seen somebody try to do that before. That's just nothing that's, uh, that, that's something that was completely foreign to me. Right? It's that integration of the two, two sides that creates a different understanding and a belief. See, I didn't recognize that when I invited him. It wasn't like I was trying to, quote unquote, expose him to something new. It was just, this is what we're doing. No different than him inviting me to a family cookout that has 80 people at it. That's in a park. I haven't experienced that. I'm not familiar with that. And so it became fascinating to acknowledge for me, just as I'm going to encourage you to do, to acknowledge the ignorance that I had, the lack of intelligence, a lack of understanding. See, there was no animosity between TJ and I having questions back and forth. Because I asked, like, why, why in black culture... Does a man show so little emotion? What is that? And he proceeds to inform me and share with me and educate me that when slaves were brought over, if they showed emotion, they were beaten. And so it's been passed down from generation to generation to not show emotion. And that's actually right, that emotionless, hard act, hard ass type of 
vantage point that TJ walks through life with, right, without, a, without an emotion on his face. It's been ingrained into him for years, for generations. You see, I never considered that as a white man. I never, that didn't even dawn on me. Like, you just always seem pissed off. So, man, I'm not mad at all. I've just been taught to stay stoic. Like, damn, okay. Right, and then I spouted back with, and I believe this to be true, that Black History Month is a joke. Not for the fact that there shouldn't be black history, but, but there should be more black history woven in and out throughout the year. We should be more educated on it. There shouldn't be one specific month. If we want to start speaking about equality, we would speak about it openly. But there's an issue with that. You see, in Africa, before we brought over the slaves, the way that they passed down information was by word of mouth. They just passed it back and forth. So there weren't scribes necessarily. There were. We certainly destroyed them. We wanted to eradicate anything other than the fact that these black individuals were ownership of certain white people. And so, of course, you destroy any record. So there's not record of black history. But again, I didn't create that. I didn't choose that. I wouldn't have selected that. And that's where all of this to me comes full circles. I didn't choose any of that. That's not who I am as a man, and I don't want to be held captive by what some dumbasses that had my skin color did before me. Because I wouldn't do the same thing and put in the same situation with who I am as a man today. I could completely care less. But as we look at this, TJ said something fascinating to me, and I had to check myself. It's like, look, you might know four or five Powerful black figures total. That's it. That's all you've been taught. It's like, all right, yeah, Malcolm X. You got Martin Luther King. I could throw Obama in there. I could throw Nelson Mandela. And then the list just kind of like trails off. And granted, I am certainly not a history buff. You don't want me, you know, teaching a history class. I admittedly found it incredibly boring. Different now, right, knowing that history seems to have this true pattern of repeating itself. And, of course, I'd heard the axiom that that if you don't focus on history, it's bound to repeat itself. I knew that existed. But it's super fascinating now because we're not even taught that. And there's no right way to do this because... A black person is going to feel like it's always disproportionate because of their cognitive bias from seeing the life through their lens. And so you try to put math to it as I do, right? I'm analytical. I'm scientific. The black population is roughly 17% of the the country's populace. And we should have 20% of our history classes be based around black history. And then that's probably wrong as well. And even as we get into police shootings for unarmed individuals, it's tough because you don't even know what, I don't know what resources to believe. You see, when I look online and I see all the stats that are out there, it seems like for every 100,000 individuals of both black and white race that are arrested based off a violent crime, the white individuals get shot actually or killed at a slightly higher percentage than that of 
black individuals. Now, I say seems because I don't know what information is actually true. I don't know what gets reported as true. I, there's all types of statistical inconsistencies across different precincts and states and information. And, and as I say that as a white man, it doesn't mean that I am passing off what happened to George Floyd. It's a true atrocity. It's horrible. It's miserable. And it's not to justify it. It's not to explain it away. It's not to act like it didn't happen. I believe all four of those officers should be persecuted to the highest degree of the law. I believe all of them are complacent and compliant in murdering George Floyd. But some of the numbers are some of the numbers. And I forget the twins, the Hodge twins, I believe, that posted a video that had me thinking as well. Boy, they started sharing some facts. And this is from them. They are black twins that are online. They're not the experts. They don't speak for the black community. But it was fascinating to me to watch their content today. As I shared a six and a half minute Instagram live video saying that the Black Lives Matter movement is a farce that's actually designed to create additional separatism. And that as you look at it, not only is it disproportionate the way that it's not disproportionate, it's equal between black homicides and white homicides at the hands of police officers. But that there's also some fascinating information around the fact that the Black Lives Matter, they don't talk about 50% of the black deaths are at the hands of another black man. And they happen in the ghetto. And they happen in the hands of unregistered guns. And nobody's coming in to solve that problem. It's like we just allow that to happen. Like, of course, there's oppression from the nature of where a black individual has been forced to live. <laughs> I 100% sneezed. Of course there's inequality. Of course there's all these things. I'm not bypassing those. I understand that white people have done that, right? That the ghettos were created for all types of atrocious reasons. Man, at some point, things that happened 50, 60, 70 years ago, I can't bear that cross. I want to help fix it, but there's no instant way to fix it. And more specifically, I don't believe it can be fixed. Not in our generation, not in the generation after, not in the generation after. We're not evolved enough as a society to consider that a possibility. Of course it comes from education. Of course it comes from understanding. Of course it comes from conversations. But in order to have a conversation, you have to be able to be void of emotion. Right? It's the whole facts, feelings, focus, fruit conversation. The Garrett White coined that introduced into my life. We get caught in our feelings, right? I walk up to a black man that I don't know and say, why can't I call you the N-word? He instantly has to get defensive from the things he's been through in his life. Well, I didn't mean it any sort of way. I was curious. And he asked me, why do you wear your shorts so damn high? <laughs> right? Like, I don't take that to be defensive, but I guess I could It's a really fascinating time we live in, isn't it? 
Like look at the conspiracy theory side of things and seeing, right, you got the coronavirus that kept us all locked down for 11, 12 weeks. You got the the George Floyd thing that still admittedly doesn't make any sense to me. Not only the senseless act that someone had to die, but let's really, like the facts that I have found online, George walked into a store and handed somebody a dollar bill that they believed to be a fake 20. George walks out of the store and decides to stand out in front of that store for quite some time until a cop shows up. In order for that cop to show up, the the attendant, the convenience store clerk, decided, just decided to call the cops over a $20 bill that she thought might be fake. Now, with you and I, right up, TJ and I shared this. If I had manufactured twenty a fake $20 bill, which I never have, but if I had and I tried to pass it off somewhere, and if it was confiscated, and if the person refused me service, and if they said, we think this is fake, I am running. Right? I might walk out of the store, but I am getting out of there. I'm not going to stand in front of the store for another 10 or 15 minutes. That's just not logical. That's not what people do. It's also rather illogical in a busy city, a $20 bill with no exchange of goods and services gets passed from person to person. And the clerk decides that it's worth her time or his time to call the cops and, and look into this deeper. Then the cop that happens to pull up happens to have worked with George Floyd before. And then as the cop decides to senselessly take George Floyd's life for what feels like an eternity through that video, he just stares aimlessly at the camera. There's no real squirming. There's no telling the camera to shut off. There's no telling George to be quiet. There's no contemplation of moving. There's nothing. It's It looks like it's just direct intentional murder, which maybe it is. Or maybe the conspiracy side of me says, couldn't there be something greater here? Couldn't there be something behind the scenes that created all this? Couldn't there be somebody just couldn't there? Like, it's almost too perfect, right? It's almost too easy that that's just what it is. I look at some of the unique facts about the situation. None of this takes away from the fact that George Floyd was murdered in broad daylight. But let's even, I'll, I'll go through the, the little list. Right, and this is coming from a post. According to the store clerks, George attempted to make a purchase with a fake $20 bill. The clerk refused the money. George left without incident but decided to hang out in front of the store just standing around. In the meantime, just for practice, the clerk notified the police over the incident. The police then rushed right over in a big city because, you know, they normally have time to rush right over for a fake $20 bill from someone who has already left the scene. Imagine their good fortune in that moment to find George Floyd still standing there. That's what most people would do after being caught with a $20 bill. Counterfeit, right? Just walk outside and stand there. Find it odd, then, that Derek, the officer who deserves to be in prison slash face a death penalty, in my opinion, and George may have known each other well. They used to work together for 17 years, apparently, unverified. I find it odd the cop had his hand in his pockets while he put his knee on his friend's throat. That's very odd. I find it odd they did not just put him in the backseat of the cop car as he didn't decide to resist arrest. I find it odd that a man who couldn't get air because his windpipe was being crushed was able to repeatedly yell out for a very long period of time and did not struggle to live. 
Why didn't he call for help with all those people standing around and filming him? I find it odd that all these people just stood there and the cops just let him film it. I find it odd that most of Derek's weight says it's claimed it was on his right knee, the one that's on the ground, not the left knee on his friend's neck. I find it odd that the paramedic that arrived on the scene approached Derek's or approached him so nonchalantly then placed George without checking his pulse, just like flopped him onto a gurney and drove away. It's odd that Derek's neighbors, the cop, said they never knew he was a police officer. Said they never saw him coming and going wearing uniform. I find it odd that in the video it shows that the price of diesel fuel in Minnesota was 94 cents a gallon. It's never been 94 cents a gallon, not for years. It's just odd how all these things go together. None of this detracts from the fact that an innocent, seemingly innocent, a certainly not worthy of death crime was committed, that George Floyd's no longer with us. You look at COVID, you look at the stats that are coming out, you look at the CDC that's retracting things over and over again. These are factual statements. Look at Italy that's up in uproar now that's revolting against being in lockdown because of the coronavirus because the stats don't line up. It's proven, it's out there, it's happening. You look as we're starting to get tired of that and losing traction and then you look, there has to be a racism issue that pops up. There has to be something. And rightfully so, right? It deserves to be spoken about. I look at this as an incredible gift and a blessing because it had to come to fruition. It had to be here. We have to evolve as a society. But right now, as I'm recording this, Derek has been indicted on second-degree manslaughter, I believe. And the other three officers have been arrested. So now everybody involved has been detained. They've been arrested on charges of some sort of level of murder. By the nature of that, wouldn't it be natural that the protest for justice would slowly dissipate potentially maybe not right i believe there's still a lot of conversations that need to be had around racism bigotry division separation what do you think the odds are that because now we've all been out in droves right we've all been out protesting they give it another three four five weeks right we'll go mid-july early august there's gonna be another spike in the coronavirus What do you think the odds are of that? What do you think the odds are that something else is going to come up? I said, this is just a very fascinating time to be alive, and I'm having this conversation with you more to get your mind thinking about what could be and as well to learn new things because I'm an incredibly inquisitive individual that doesn't claim to know much of anything. But to me, when things don't seem right, they typically aren't right. And watching that video, while anytime seeing a video of anybody be murdered, doesn't feel right. That felt really different. There's a video, if you search it, there's two young white individuals inside of a, inside of a hotel that are apparently drunk. And they're being arrested. An officer with a, looks like AR-15 or something comparable, you're right, you can hear that the angst in his voice, he's screaming and they're going back and forth and this young man is on the ground and he's crawling and he stands up or moves in a way that he shouldn't and he's gunned down right on camera. 
and you can tell, right? There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on there. There's a lot of energy. It's like the heat of the moment that happened. Not making it okay. That doesn't that's not explaining it away. It's just the, my thought, my feeling. The George thing, it's just like, ah, I'm just gonna sit here and stare at the camera as I kill this man. And maybe it is certainly possible that this man is so racist so filled with hate towards another individual that he may have worked with for 17 years, that he's so enraged by this man that he can, without any sort of thought or emotion, end his life. That is a possibility. It just seems strange that that would be the possibility. Immaterially so. I certainly hope these officers are prosecuted to the full extent of the law. I hope they don't get off on some sort of technicality. And I hope that there's reform that holds police officers as accountable as we are held and are held to a high standard. But I also hope then we as civilians are willing to have more open conversations and listen to an officer that requires something from us. You see, this is a two-way road from where I sit. I got pulled over. I had no idea why. But I knew in the back of my mind, that cop goes through a lot of shit. And whether he's just starting his shift or just ending his shift, I have no idea what he's been through. So it's common for me. Anytime I get pulled over, I flip on the overhead light in the car. I put my hands very clearly, both hands on the steering wheel. I shut off the car. I roll down my driver's side window as I'm stopping. I had no idea why that cop wanted me to get out of the car. I had no idea why he was yelling at me. But he did, and so I did. I had no idea why he was so aggressive and mean and <laughs> violent towards me, but he was, and so I dealt with it. And it was a white cop on a white man. And I guess the conversation could be had. I could go after him. I could have went, if something had to change. But to me, right, I have to take into consideration that for all I know, he just got done either stopping or bearing witness to a homicide. And the adrenaline running through his veins has him all hopped up. And he doesn't know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. And there's no way to tell as a cop right away. There's no way to tell who has a gun. There's no way to tell who's going to try to end your life. And so to me, it makes sense to comply with an officer, even if it feels a little egregious. But the cops need better training as well. I'm Ryan Nidell, wishing you truly unlimited success.